The interchange is supported by Five Works, a turnkey customer engagement platform. Utilities, if you're looking to go beyond the meter to engage your customers on a deeper level and drive them toward desired outcomes, you're looking for Five Works. Five Works personalizes digital communications and drives customer behavior at scale by using behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning technology to help you market to a customer of one. That's how you deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. To see how Five Works can help your program succeed, visit fiveworks.com/theinterchange. That's five works with an X. fiveworks.com/theinterchange, or follow the link on the podcast page. A quick warning before the show: No, it's not an explicit language warning. This week's conversation was recorded at the beginning of the week. In part of this interview with Trevor Hauser, we discuss what causes outages in America, which is directly related to Rick Perry's proposed rule propping up coal and nuke plants in the name of resiliency. And we talk a bit about that plan under the assumption that a decision would come. Well, later that day, we got a decision from federal energy regulators. They declined Perry's plan. And so this saga, at least in its current form, comes to a close. But the conversation itself about what causes outages is still really fascinating, so listen to that. And it's wrapped up in a much bigger conversation about whether America's coal industry is really on the rebound and what comes next for energy policy in the U.S. Enjoy. This is The Interchange, conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Out in Berkeley is Shale Khan. Shale, hello. Hello, Stephen. This week, we explore the state of coal, the state of the electric grid, and the state of energy politics in America. Shale and I sat down with Trevor Hauser, a partner with the Rhodium Group, to unpack some of the big themes that we're grappling with currently in the U.S. energy sphere as 2018 unfolds. Trevor is a pretty well-known figure in energy circles. He was Hillary Clinton's energy policy advisor during the presidential campaign. He was a former senior advisor to the State Department on international energy issues. And he puts out a lot of analysis at the Rhodium Group about exactly what we're discussing today. Federal energy policy, the emissions outlook for the U.S., electric system reliability, coal markets, and a whole host of other issues. So in this week's episode, we're riffing on as many of them as possible. Uh, Shale, you got to know Trevor through the Clinton Energy Policy Advisory Group, right? Yeah, he was uh, one of the leaders of this working group that I was a small part of that uh, was producing basically policy ideas for Secretary Clinton during the 2016 campaign. So they ended up producing like hundreds of pages of white papers of valuable policy ideas that nobody ever read and might never go anywhere. Yeah, I thought that was funny. I asked him about energy politics during the Clinton campaign, and he reminded me that he was on the policy group and uh, responsible for the team that wrote a lot of those white papers that sat on a shelf. Yeah, I mean, it's a real bummer, honestly, because there was, I mean, I had a very small window into this, right? This There was, a, you know, a, a pretty big working group of really interesting, thoughtful folks who are trying to craft realistic policy ideas under the, you know, both for the purpose of the campaign itself and in the event that Secretary Clinton won um things that she could try to implement as president. And, you know, there was really good thinking that went into it, even the little bit of it that I saw, and I'm sure Trevor saw way more than I did. Uh, and it's it's a shame that it's just sort of sitting there on a shelf somewhere collecting dust at the moment. Well, a lot of his work at the Rhodium Group is not collecting dust. We pass many of their reports around internally here at GTM. And uh, publicly, a lot of people have been talking about the Rhodium Group's analysis because they tap into the biggest issues of the day. Again, the status of coal markets and whether Trump administration policy is boosting coal production in this country. The answer is no, not really. Uh, our emissions trajectory, you know, where things are headed given the deregulatory agenda at the Trump administration. And the answer is the uh, picture is pretty mixed. And, and also renewable energy policy and the health of the grid. So they have weighed in on what actually causes outages and have looked at heavy renewable grids and heavy coal, natural gas, and nuclear grids and tried to determine whether a mix of those technologies is responsible for outages or correlated with 
more or less outages, and they found that there's really no basis in reality for Rick Perry's uh, proposed rule to you know, ask for this 90-day fuel supply that would prop up coal and nuclear plants. So really interesting work at the group that uh, has, has been getting passed around in energy circles. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really like about the work that, that Rhodium does is, first of all, they wade into policy issues. Um, so everything that we talked about had some policy lens on it, whether the you know rules and regulations around coal are impacting coal demand, what's happening under the Trump administration, whether this you know FERC ruling is warranted or not, um, and the politics of climate change. So th- so everything they're doing is a policy lens, but you know they're really good at taking the big issues in climate and energy policy and then finding data to figure out what's actually happening. Um, and so they're they're doing quantitative analysis, but it it drives a really clear point home typically in terms of what policy impacts are or what they should be. We began with a report card of sorts. How did the Trump administration fare in its efforts to bring back coal? Trump promised to bring back the industry, and with Scott Pruitt at the helm of EPA, he has undertaken a very aggressive regulatory agenda or deregulatory agenda to do just that. And I asked, so how's he doing? Uh... Not great so far, um, but you know, to be fair, uh, reversing a century-long decline in coal mining employment and a market-driven collapse in domestic coal consumption over the past eight years uh, is uh, is a pretty heavy lift. Uh, we just as a little you know, little bit of context setting, 2007 was the peak for U.S. coal consumption uh, at a little bit above a billion tons. And between 2007 and 2016, production and consumption both fell by about 35 to 36 percent in the U.S. Coal mining employment fell from 125,000 to 75,000 miners. That's that's about where we ended uh, uh, 2016. Uh, So that was a backdrop when uh, when President Trump uh, took office. Uh, We've got full year numbers out now, and it looks like production did rise a bit last year. Uh, So based on kind of preliminary data, U.S. coal production was up 6, 7 percent in 2017. And that's a fact that the president has uh, repeatedly highlighted on Twitter and another uh, another fora. Uh, But it turns out that that small recovery in U.S. coal production uh, had nothing to do with a change in the domestic market for coal. Uh, it was entirely driven by a change in conditions outside the U.S. U.S. coal consumption last year continued to fall. It dropped by 2.4% year on year. Can we talk for a minute before we get into what's happened during the Trump administration about what was driving the decline since 2007? You wrote a good paper last spring that tried to actually quantify the impacts of various factors on coal's decline in the U.S. Can you just kind of rehash that and tell us why coal is on the decline? The first was a slowdown and ultimately decline in U.S. electricity demand. Um, you know, U.S. power demand grew by 1% to 2% a year on average. Uh, for most of the post-war period. And then starting in about 2006, 2007, power demand uh, growth flattened out. And it seemed like initially that was just the result of the Great Recession and power demand fell uh, in, uh, in 2008 and 2009. But then when the economy recovered, power demand didn't. And it's been pretty flat or declining ever since. And so that's meant a smaller market in which uh, coal has had to compete and then coal-fired power plants have faced some pretty competitive new entrants, uh, increasingly affordable renewables, uh, wind and solar that have outcompeted new coal plants for probably more than a decade and are increasingly outcompeting existing coal plants in, in certain parts of the country. Uh, and then, of course, the dramatic reduction in the price of natural gas uh, due to the shale boom. That's how the composition of the domestic market has changed. So then the question is, you know, what role did regulations play in driving that shift from coal to natural gas and renewables. You know, and certainly state renewable portfolio standards, the federal investment tax credit and production tax credit help make renewable energy cheaper to consumers and accelerated its expansion. Uh, But that's not generally what um, 
uh, opponents of Obama administration regulatory action point to. They point to EPA regulations on coal-fired power plants specifically. Uh, and, you know, there were more than a dozen EPA regulations during the second term of the Obama administration that um, that had an impact on the relative cost of coal. Uh, the most important was probably the mercury air toxics rule that uh, prompted a number of coal-fired power plants either to install uh, control technology or to shut down and switch to natural gas. Now, it's important to note that those regulations were put in place to address uh, a neurotoxin uh, mercury that has severe health consequences, particularly in children. Uh, and the regulations did uh, accelerate the retirement of coal-fired power plants between 2011 and 2015. Uh, but when we add all that up, given the generation, uh, average generation rates of those plants before they retired, that at most contributed to about 5% of the decline. Uh, the vast majority was just a dispatch change between operating coal-fired power plants and natural gas power plants or renewables. Okay, so we have this basically decade-long secular decline in coal driven primarily by market factors, as you mentioned. Then the Trump administration comes into power and uh, coal production goes up, but as you said, not because they reversed that trend, but because there was a big increase in exports. So why was there a big increase in exports all of a sudden in 2017? Well, and that's actually the export story is an important untold part of the story of the past decade, too. So in at the peak in 2011, the four largest U.S. coal companies that account for about half of all U.S. productions, Peabody, Alpha, Cloud Peak, Arch, they together had a market capitalization of about $35 billion. And by the end of 2016, three of the four were in bankruptcy and their combined market cap was $150 million. And that was one of the most spectacular collapses of shareholder value in U.S. market history. And the primary cause of that decline in the value of those companies actually didn't have anything to do with changing market conditions in the U.S. and had more to do with changing market conditions outside of the world, outside of the U.S. So in the peak in 2011, 2012, you know, Chinese coal demand had been growing for about a decade at double digit rates. And these companies expected that to continue and made big bets, multi-billion dollar bets on coal mining assets in Australia, started investing in export terminals on the western U.S. Uh, to allow coal from the Powder River Basin to be shipped to Asia. And instead of that continued double-digit decline in demand from China, Chinese coal demand started flattening out uh, and declined, in fact, between 2014 and 2016. That led to a collapse in global coal prices and between 2011 and 2015, that change in export conditions was responsible for more than half of the decline in revenue uh, for U.S. coal miners, and it was what pushed them over into bankruptcy. Now, coming into 2017, there was a rally in international coal prices driven by a couple of factors. One was a, uh, a shot of stimulus in the Chinese economy that increased investment in uh, buildings and infrastructure and increased demand for steel. And so you saw the price of metallurgical coal, which is used for steel production, increase. And a bunch of met coal mines in the U.S. expand production to feed those export markets. And then the other was a disruption in Australian supply, uh, weather-related, that took a bunch of Australian mining capacity offline and helped push up the price of coal in Asia. Uh, so those two factors combined led to higher-than-average coal prices in Asia last year and growth in exports uh, from the U.S. to uh, to the Asian market. And the, the Asian markets are potentially in a structural decline with regard to consumption of coal as well. So even though we see a short-term uptick in coal consumption in Asian markets, particularly in China, we're likely to see a long-term or medium-term decline. It, there's a lot of uncertainty about the outlook for Asian coal demand, um, you know, certainly in the next couple of years, but, you know, over a decade or two time horizon as well. Our view is that due to a deceleration of economic growth in China and structural adjustment, more importantly, in the Chinese economy, uh, that coal consumption is, you know, is, is likely at its peak. Um, the pace of decline 
will be a function of uh, how aggressive Chinese leadership pursues uh, environmental clean energy and structural adjustment policies, uh, but that we're unlikely to see the kind of growth that we had in the past. There will be growth in other markets. Indian coal consumption is likely to continue growing. Uh, Indonesian, Pakistani, Vietnamese coal consumption is likely to continue to grow, but they're growing from a much, much smaller base and growing much slower than China did during its takeoff period. The U.S. from the Atlantic side has always been a swing producer for export markets. So when prices are really high, production from central Appalachia, northern Appalachia, southern Appalachia gets pulled into the Atlantic basin. So there are these periods of time when international coal prices are very high, where East Coast production uh, get shipped in international markets, but there's a ceiling on that. Um, we've never seen it grow more than 100, 120 million tons a year. And what that means is if you're talking about a coal production base of 700, 800 million tons, you're not going to be able to sustain even the 6% growth in production that we saw last year. Best case scenario is holding production at current uh, at current levels of 700, 720 million metric tons. So the Trump administration saw, you know, a 6% production growth in its first year in office and obviously wanted to tout it and take credit for it. No big surprise there. Um, I would assume that kind of no matter what would have happened with coal last year, you wouldn't have attributed it mostly to the administration. There's not a whole lot that they can do that quickly. But my question is, is there something that they they are doing or could be doing that actually would uh, prop up coal demand in the United States over the next three years? I think you know we're past the point where you can argue that coal is going to stick around in its current form for the long term. But is there anything they could do to at least temporarily shore it up? And and do you see them doing that? The actions that Pruitt's EPA in particular has taken will certainly slow the pace of decline of U.S. coal demand in the U.S. So rescinding the clean power plan, uh, not enforcing environmental regulations on the books targeted at conventional air pollutants, and more importantly, not proposing any new policies to address greenhouse gas emissions, which another administration might have done, means that coal demand in the U.S. is going to decline less quickly than it would have otherwise. Uh, and for a couple of years, you might actually see it flatten out and not decline. Uh, but that's very different than the kind of renaissance in U.S. coal production that uh, President Trump, when he was candidate Trump, promised. And it's not clear that flat coal consumption in the U.S. is really much of an answer for communities that have been dependent on coal mining for decades and are trying to figure out where to go uh, in, in the years ahead. I grew up in Wyoming. We produce close to half of the coal consumed in the U.S. And, you know, there's been a increasingly honest conversation in the state about what the future looks like and whether this is just one more commodity cycle that uh, the residents of Wyoming can ride out and that there's another boom waiting on the horizon or whether we're really in a structural decline and it's time to start investing in other types of economic growth and job creation. And I think the disservice that the administration does to communities like those in Wyoming and West Virginia and Kentucky by promising a return to the, to the kind of peak boom days, which for, you know, Wyoming was about a decade ago and for West Virginia and Kentucky was almost a century ago uh, is that it It delays the kind of investments and tough policy decisions uh, that, uh, that those states, states need to make. It's going to require some kind of painful decisions in the short term and, uh, and, and facing hard truths about what's happening in the market that even if actions by the current administration are able to slow the pace of decline, Coal production is never going back to where it was, uh, that concerns about global climate change are not going away, uh, and that the sooner communities make investments in alternative drivers of economic development and job creation, the better off they're going to be. 
So I want to transition to talking about another piece of work that you guys have done that I really liked, which was looking at what actually causes blackouts in the U.S. Uh, historically. And it's relevant, obviously, because uh, by the time this episode posts, we we may or may not know what FERC is going to do about this notice of proposed rulemaking that came from Secretary Perry um, about sort of offering full cost recovery to any plant with 90-day fuel supply. And the argument that he was making basically to save mostly coal and to some extent nuclear plants was that um, this is what's required to maintain reliability on the grid. And when they did that, you guys put together an analysis that was actually using data from the AIA. Um, on what actually causes blackouts. So can you give us kind of the high level conclusion of when we have had blackouts in the US, what what has caused them? Yeah, sure. So we when when Secretary Perry proposed uh, the uh, uh, the rule to FERC and focused on this kind of fuel supply reliability issue, the question we asked ourselves was well, is how much of an issue is generation side issues as a whole in terms of determining blackouts, how major of a factor is that? And uh, and we dug through some EIA data. Unfortunately, whenever there's a blackout, utilities have to report it to EIA. And so we have a pretty good data set of every outage for the past five, six years, how many customers were impacted, how long the lights were out, and what the cause of the outage was. And what we found was that the vast, vast majority uh, of power disruption to consumers is caused by line issues, transmission and distribution line issues, not generation side issues. And then within generation issues, fuel insecurity, so the inability of a power plant to get the fuel it needs to operate, which is the target of Secretary Perry's proposal, has accounted for only 0.00007% of all lost customer hours. <laughs> can, can, can you just rep rep repeat that again? It's worth repeating. Uh, yeah, yeah 0.00007%. So that's, uh, you know, that was a total of 2,382 lost customer hours over the past five years. And it turns out that of those 2,382 lost customer hours, 2,333 of them were due to one outage in northern Minnesota that was actually a coal-fired power plant, where the power plant was unable to access the coal because it was frozen. So the one place where we have actually seen in the past five years a fuel insecurity-driven outage was from a coal-fired power plant because they couldn't access their frozen piles of coal. And in fact, this is something that we saw repeated again over the past week with the cold weather on the East Coast. A lot of coal-fired power plants had difficulty accessing coal supply because of frozen coal trains, uh, challenging distribution terminals. It, it turns out that extreme weather impacts coal and nuclear supply security uh, in the same way that uh, that that it impacts uh, other fuels as well. You can't you can't make this stuff up. I, I you know, what's really interesting to me is that I you know, when I was reading your analysis, you showed the EIA data that you grabbed and the DOE data that you grabbed. And so there's actually a lot of information that is gathered by Rick Perry's Department of Energy that has been gathered by DOE over the years on fuel emergencies at power plants, which shows that, uh, you know, generation-related problems result in a very few number of uh, customer outages. So Rick Perry's DOE has this information at their fingertips right now. And, it, you know, it's not that electricity reliability isn't an issue. It's, it's a significant issue. Uh, and if the Department of Energy wants to try to improve the reliability of electricity delivery to Americans, there is a lot of very fruitful work that they and FERC can do, it turns out that the vast majority of lost customer hours in the U.S. are due to hurricanes. Hurricanes lay waste to electric power systems like no other event does. And if you want proof of that, you don't have to look any farther than what's happened in Puerto Rico, where we are now at 2.5 billion lost customer hours 
since the storm hit in the end of September. So compare that 2.5 billion lost customer hours to 2,382 lost customer hours from fuel supply and security. So Puerto Rico uh, is suffering from the largest blackout in U.S. history. And it has nothing to do with generation security and has everything to do with power lines, both on the transmission and the distribution system uh, that were taken out by a storm. And we have seen that in uh, in uh, the U.S. southeast during hurricanes. Uh, we saw it in New York during Sandy. Uh, there is a lot of work that needs to be done in making our transmission and distribution system more resilient to extreme weather because the kinds of storms we saw during this hurricane season uh, are going to become more frequent and intense in the years ahead. Just to represent or try to represent, I think the the best other side of this argument that I've heard in terms of uh, whether having things like coal and nuclear or whatever baseload power you want um, offer reliability benefits, you know, the argument would be whether or not the blackouts that we've seen historically were driven by lack of fuel supply. Um, we haven't had markets historically that have had as high penetration of intermittent generation as we will be seeing in the future. And so it's protecting ourselves. And this is sort of the the language in which Rick Perry tends to couch this when he talks about it is protecting ourselves against the, the changes in the future grid. Um, but you guys actually did another bit of analysis that I think got less coverage, but to me was just as interesting in that same piece when you where you sort of compared the frequency of outages and duration of those outages that we've seen historically against the combined market share of coal and nuclear in those same places and sort of made the point that, look, even in the places where we've had high share of coal and nuclear, that actually has meant more outages generally. Yeah, the the nice thing about the nice thing about having uh, a you know, having a regionally fragmented grid creates a lot of policy problems. <laughs> One of the nice things about it is that it allows for these comparative studies where you look at different parts of the U.S. grid and how they have performed historically relative to their generation mix. So we have parts of the grid that have almost no coal and nuclear power uh, that are almost entirely renewables and natural gas. And what we found is that those grids did not have higher levels of customer outages than grids with higher quantities of coal and nuclear power. In fact, many of them had lower. The Interchange is brought to you by FiveWorks. Times, they are a changing for utilities. In this digital age, the world expects more. And in the utility space, that means beyond meter data. Not only are you being asked to better engage and service your customers, but to anticipate their changing expectations and preferences. So what does it mean to truly know your customers? And can you leverage your data and the rising standards for customer engagement to benefit your business? With FiveWorks, absolutely you can. FiveWorks personalizes communication and drives customer action at scale through behavioral science, psychographic personas, and machine learning enabling you to deliver the right message to the right person through the right channel at the right time. Go to fiveworks.com slash the interchange for more. That's fiveworks with an X, fiveworks.com slash the interchange, or follow the link on the podcast page to begin engaging the customer of one. So I don't want to spend too much time rehashing the 2016 election, but uh, I do think it's worth talking about the politics of energy and climate in the context of that election. Obviously, you know, energy and climate issues weren't at the forefront um, during the general election in 2016. But do you think that they should have been? Do you think that, um, you know, how do you how do you drive climate change, especially given what you're saying, toward the front of the conversation when you have such massive uh, political issues that take up all the headspace of everybody who's paying attention? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to have a satisfactory answer to it, but I mean, I can share some of my kind of current thinking. Um, I think we've got two challenges when it comes to the politics of climate and climate policy uh, in the U.S. You know, one is partisanization. Um, we, I think, Shale, you and I talked at the GTM Solar Conference 
year ago um, about increased partisan divide on climate that in 2008, you had both a Republican nominee and a Democratic nominee who promised that climate would be one of their policy priorities and both of whom supported cap and trade legislation. Both Barack Obama and John McCain uh, endorsed cap and trade as part of the 2008 presidential campaign. Uh, And we had a presidential election last year, 2016, in which, you know, the difference between the two candidates couldn't really have been more stark. Um, and it's very challenging for Republican elected officials because of their uh, primary politics and because of their sources of campaign funding to uh, take the kind of position on climate that McCain did in 2008. But Democrats have a climate problem too, and it's an intensity problem. Uh, it's just not that high of a priority issue for Democratic politicians or Democratic voters uh, compared to uh, other issues, whether it's health care or immigration policy or others. And, you know, and I think you can see that right now in that there is a large coordinated effort both by Democratic politicians and by Democratic activists to put together the contours of what a democratic healthcare proposal would be should Democrats retake Congress or the White House. There is nothing even close to that happening on the climate and clean energy side. There's not the equivalent of a single payer bill uh, for climate and clean energy that uh, the Democratic electeds or activists are uh, are uh, rallying around. And uh, and in part, that's because it's just not as it has not traditionally been as motivating of an issue for Democratic voters and therefore for uh, uh, for Democratic electeds as others. I think that's starting to change. I think one of the um, kind of unintended consequences maybe of uh, President Trump's kind of direct assault on uh, both Obama-era climate regulations and uh, the Paris Agreement is that it has catalyzed a level of awareness and interest in climate policy among uh, among Democratic voters that wasn't there before. But I don't think that's yet at the level that would be required to ensure that uh, that that climate legislation uh, would would get kind of high priority billing under a future Democratic administration. You know, you mentioned the there's this effort around defining what um, a healthcare legislation from the left should look like. Uh, And what's happening there that I find interesting is that it is coalescing around either some version of Medicare for all or single payer, something that sort of traditionally would have, would have sat to the left or on the more progressive side of the spectrum. And I wonder whether if this were to happen with climate and energy, if we were to define what the roadmap should look like, um, would you think the same thing would happen? I would think the equivalent in the case of climate and energy would be either climate legislation that goes beyond the Paris Agreement, says we will do more than that, something more aggressive, or on the energy side, you know, there was there was some debate in the primary um on the Democratic side in 2016 about whether to push for like a hundred percent renewables target or something like that. Would you expect to see something like that come out? Because the general direction right now is that is that Democrats, as they're defining their agenda, are sort of angling left? Or do you think that, you know, you try to bring along some Republicans who have a hard time um, you know, coming out in favor of any climate legislation now, but might you might be able to peel a couple off if you do something that isn't as aggressive? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the first choice that uh, a future Democratic administration would have to make is whether to continue to pursue a regulatory agenda like President Obama did, or whether to push for legislation. Uh, you know, Secretary Clinton in the primary uh, chose a continuation and expansion of the primarily regulatory focus that the Obama administration had uh, had taken. That's going to be less of an option for a future Democratic administration, both because of 
dismantling of that regulatory apparatus that's currently underway and just also because of the time lag it takes to put those regulations uh, in place. So I think it'll be to stay on, to, to be on track to meet a Paris Agreement target and certainly to achieve a, you know 80 to 90% long-term reduction in U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, I think it'll be increasingly necessary uh, to move legislation. And so then the question is kind of what type of legislation do you put forward? I think more important than the um, specific design elements of that legislation is the process to ensure that all parts of, you know, at a minimum, the Democratic caucus uh, can support it. Uh, there's a divide within uh, within the Democratic Party uh, between uh, environmental groups and organized labor on many of these points. Uh, you know, we in the kind of clean energy field talk a lot about the hundreds of thousands of jobs that are being created in wind and solar and energy efficiency. And that's very real and very true. It is also the case that very few of those jobs are unionized. And when you talk to organized labor, particularly the building and construction trades, which represents you know, 3 million Americans uh, that get about half of their hours in the energy sector, they see very, very few hours coming from renewables, uh, probably 20 times as many hours just from pipelines as all renewables combined. And so for them, they still don't see that uh, clean energy future as being one that's going to benefit their members specifically. And, uh, and that creates a political challenge for, uh, for Democrats in, in putting together a piece of legislation that, um, uh, that uh, can bring all parts of the party uh, party together. It, it just seems to me that we need a major rhetorical shift if we're going to get any sort of comprehensive clean energy policy on the nat- national level. I mean, you know, the polls tell us that there's a major partisan split when you start talking about climate change. And then when you start talking about free markets and the competition of renewable energy and consumer choice, everybody loves it. You know, right after Trump was elected, there were a couple Republican polling outfits that showed renewable energy is a winning issue. And we've seen this time and time again, no matter the voter or the administration, you see wild support among uh, both Tea Party Republicans and more traditional Republicans for renewables um, and therefore, you know, implicitly climate action. So I wonder if folks, you know, across the spectrum, we're talking about Democrats here, but Um, you know, legislators across the spectrum should adopt language like crafting new national interconnection standards, or, you know, you know, look at what Angus King from Maine did. Senator King from Maine in 2015 introduced the Free Market Energy Act that would unbundle rate structures that would open up the the door for time variant pricing um, and different tariffs to reflect the local costs of solar and storage and microgrids and so forth. It's set standard inter- interconnection policies. You know, it's a it's a bill that would do a lot to propel distributed energy and renewables, but it's not creating this top-down mandate per se in the way that we traditionally know them, in a way that gets a lot of resistance from folks. So I just it just feels to me like we need a complete language shift on this stuff. But I think that the problem is you can do you can and probably should do a lot of that stuff and you can use you know you can use different rhetoric to get there and that might help you um achieve it faster politically but the and but that's all in some ways small ball when you're talking about the big picture issue which is climate change and hitting greenhouse gas, gas emissions targets for the US. Like you can, you know, you can do lots of things to incentivize interconnection and distributed energy and make renewables easier to build and that's that's helpful and important, but I think generally that doesn't get you to our Paris targets alone. You need some form of national climate or carbon legislation or regulation. Um, And it's hard to do that without talking about climate change. Right. But like the Waxman-Markey bill, for example, set short-term targets that were below uh, short-term renewable energy targets that were below what we had already hit at the time. I mean, the national policy that we've seen crafted so far has been pretty abysmal. And it's pretty clear so far that the stuff that we've toyed with on the national level wouldn't actually get us to 
the targets that we're talking about, which don't allow us to avoid catastrophic climate change. I just think that like, you know, the, 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 the supposed forward thinking national policies that we put, put forward have not actually been all that ambitious. And so cutting red tape and allowing localities to implement this stuff in a more seamless way seems like more ambitious than some of the national targets that we've been talking about. Yeah. So I'd make a couple points. I mean, first I, you know, I'd agree, Stephen, that, um, communications around clean energy is often able to attract a broader base of support than around climate. The challenge is that the intensity of that support is pretty low. So it's, you know, it's same if you poll a bunch of people about their feelings about kittens, you know, people generally have pretty positive feelings about kittens. If you poll people about their feelings about solar wind, they generally have pretty positive feelings about solar wind as technologies, whether that is going to be something that, uh, changes their view in a voting box or whether they're willing to prioritize that over other issues um, is, is the challenge. I would for, you know, it is true that the kind of shorter term targets under Waxman Markey um, were higher than where emissions ended up being. But it's also the case that Waxman Markey had legally binding economy-wide emissions caps all the way out to 2050 that would have delivered an 83% reduction in economy-wide greenhouse gas emissions, which is unbelievably ambitious. <laughs> uh, and uh, so there was a temporal issue there, but that was, that was uh, I would differ with the characterization of that legislation. I think, you know, the most important piece that people overlook, we spend a lot of time thinking about the electric power sector. And the electric power sector is important. Uh, it's where we've made most of our progress in reducing emissions to date because there are a lot of you know, pretty mature, cost-competitive, low-carbon alternatives, uh, increasingly the case in recent years. But it's also true that you know, this year, U.S. power sector emissions will probably be about 25% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the transport sector is a larger share of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions now than power generation is. The industrial sector is you know, 20 to 25 percent of GHG emissions. And then there's agriculture and uh, uh, land use, uh, oil and gas systems. And so that that scope requires Pretty, a pretty broad-based approach. Now, you can do that like the Obama administration did, where you have a regulatory agenda that tries to tackle those sectors individually, or you can do it through economy-wide legislation. But I don't know, you know, even if we went to zero emissions in the power sector tomorrow, we would only have tackled about a quarter of the, of the challenge. Yeah, totally fair points. You know, I, I just I look at what's happening today with the decarbonization of the electricity sector and natural gas plays such a prominent role. And if you consider the rise of shale gas, it came from a deregulatory agenda under the George W. Bush administration at the EPA and a multi-decade investment at the Department of Energy into new drilling techniques. Um, it was not a mandate for natural gas. And now, today, decades later, after this has all played out, natural gas is helping us lower carbon emissions. So while I, I think that a, pretty much any policy tool we have in the toolkit, we need to start considering, um, I, I do believe there are other ways to get us to unlocking um, low-carbon technologies than just simply putting out a, a mandate or a complicated cap-and-trade system. Again, I'm, I'm not really passing judgment on any particular policy because I think we pretty much need to consider everything. But I think natural gas is a really interesting example of how, a massive impact you can have w by s not necessarily setting a mandate. I don't think anybody's arguing, and certainly I'm not arguing, that you should just do a mandate, right? Uh, I think... I think the scale of the challenge warrants one if you can get it done politically. But, you know, I think that the the suite of policies and regulations that would be a good idea 
in aggregate or even individually involve some things that would be viewed as sort of top-down mandates or requirements and many things that wouldn't, right? Investment in R&D and support for deployment. I would scale way up programs like the Sunshot Initiative and create a bunch of additional clones of that for other sectors, including some of the ones that Trevor mentioned that are not in the electric power sector. And there's a whole bunch of things that you you could do, create a federal green bank. I mean, there's a, there's a million of them, but I think that um, I think that there's a, a tendency now to basically give up on the idea that we could have one comprehensive federal climate legislation of some sort or regulation, um, just given the political wins. And, and I'm not ready to to totally give up on that yet. Again, totally fair. And I was not assuming that either of you were um, promoting a particular policy. I am curious, Trevor, how do you think Secretary Clinton's messaging on clean energy landed with voters? What kind of polling were you considering? Um, How are you crafting and tweaking that message? And how do you think it landed? Uh, Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I I was on the policy team. So, you know, we were tasked with writing the hundreds of pages of white papers that nobody read. Um, So I don't (laughs) I don't I don't know how. Uh, uh, the, uh, um, I don't know how the messaging, uh, was received. Like Shale said, I don't, um, it wasn't certainly at a national level, uh, it wasn't a very, um, climate and clean energy weren't, you know, kind of tier one issues. Uh, they didn't come up in the debates except, uh, with one exception, uh, and, uh, they weren't the subject of much national media coverage. It, you know, she talked about, uh, pretty regular part of her stump speech was talking about um, all of the jobs being created in wind and solar, the reduction in cost to consumers, uh, you know, how much that mattered in places like Iowa or, uh, or North Carolina or Florida um, relative to other issues. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, and, you know, there was some of that messaging that was a uh, liability, uh, I'm sure, with certain voters as well uh, that were you know, concerned about the future of the coal industry or the oil and gas industry and, and, uh, and their employment in that industry. Um, so I think in general, it wasn't, uh, wasn't a terribly significant issue uh, in, uh, in the election, but I'm not sure uh, exactly how the, you know, the places where that was a prominent part of the messaging were how it was received. Inevitably, when we get into these conversations, we have two modes of thinking. I would say the optimists believe that no matter what, there's so much momentum behind clean energy, it doesn't matter what the Trump administration is going to do. There are others in the climate space who look at the Trump regulatory agenda and just are completely uh, pessimistic about where we go, knowing that you know every day, every week, Every month matters in terms of climate action. And so where do you fall in either of those camps? Like, how should we feel about this moment right now? Um, that's a good question. So I, uh, our, our company is uh, part of this partnership called the Climate Impact Lab, which is a consortium of climate scientists and economists and data engineers that are you know, trying to use both climate models and big data analytics to understand the impact of climate change in different parts of the country, different parts of the world. And so that means I spend a lot of time staring at terrifying and depressing climate science data. Um, but it also means that, um, that, that I have a appreciation for how much risk we have avoided and the progress that we've made on clean energy over the past five, six years. Um, I think we have reached a point due to you know, innovation in the renewable space, decline in cost of batteries, where, uh, where you know, we're, we've achieved escape velocity for renewable energy, for electric vehicles, for a number of other low-carbon technologies, um, that their market share is going to continue to expand both in the U.S. and around the world in the years ahead. And the result of that in terms of reduction in global emissions and the reduction in risk and impact to human civilization is really dramatic. So, you know, if you take in the kind of emissions trajectory we were on about a decade ago and extrapolated it forward, uh, you know, we were looking at a world where in much of the U.S., 
summer temperatures would have gotten to a point where the combination of heat and humidity made it impossible for humans to be outside for more than 30 minutes a day. Uh, the progress we've made in reducing emissions over the past five, six years, I think, has changed that to a level where you know most of the eastern U.S. will be inhabitable by humans uh, for at least the next couple of centuries. <laughs> that might not sound like good news, but in the kind of uh, in, in in the dark morass of climate science uh, that we spend a lot of our time in, uh, that's a pretty significant achievement. Uh, the reduction in emissions that uh, that we've achieved over the past decade, I think, has probably reduced the total economic cost of climate in the U.S. Uh, by, uh, by at least half. So that's the good news part of the story. The bad news is that we're still a long way from uh, emission reductions that'll keep global temperatures below two degrees C. And you know, if you look at the past five, six years, we've been reducing the carbon intensity of global energy supply by about half a percent a year. Uh, in 2016, we probably reduced it by almost 1% a year. To keep global temperatures below 2 degrees, we need to reduce the carbon intensity of global energy supply by 2 to 3% every year uh, for, uh, for the next, uh, next 30 years. So there's a lot, a lot of work we still have to do. We've got to be going a lot faster. Um, but, you know, but climate risk is not binary. Uh, and uh, the first few tons that you reduce uh, deliver some of the most significant benefits in terms of improved outcomes for, uh, for, for, uh, for human beings and for the planet. And, uh, and the progress that we've made over the past decade is, is, uh, is nothing to sneeze at. Trevor Hauser is a partner with the Rhodium Group. He was formerly Hillary Clinton's energy policy advisor. He is a former senior advisor to the State Department on international energy and environmental issues. And his analysis at the Rhodium Group is fantastic. We will, of course, provide links to a lot of the studies that we discussed uh, in the podcast in the show notes right there for you to access. Trevor, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really enjoyed this. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. That's going to do it for this week's show, folks. If you like these conversations, please share them around. Send a link to your colleagues or your friends. You can also go into Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review. That is always very much appreciated. You can find us anywhere you get podcasts if you're not in the Apple ecosystem. Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, wherever. Just uh, download us, find us, subscribe, pass it around. Thanks for joining us, folks. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.